for coming. Tonight's shir was in honor of Gershon ben David, in honor of his first yard site. Mason Shama have a very great aliyah. Those who wrote my paper didn't write who sponsored it. They mentioned, they mentioned the name, but I forgot, but they didn't write it, so what can I do? It should be whoever sponsored it, be Yashar Koyach, in honor of Gershon ben David. Mason Shama have a very great aliyah. Second dedication today was by Rachelea Krinsman. This is in honor of her mother's yard site. Edel Adina Bas Esther. This was last, uh, her yard site was on Beis Tevis. May her neshama have a very great aliyah to the greatest of heights. May she channel lots of brachas to you for all that you need and all that you want. Begash me is only happy good things. Another dedication tonight is for a yard site that's tonight. Menachem Mendel ben Yosef Akoyin. This is by his son, Monroe Sternlieb. Michol Refoil, Hakoyin Sternlieb. So his father, Menachem Mendel ben Yosef HaKoyim, may his have a very great aliyah. To the greatest of heights, and much brachas to you for all that you need and all that you want. Only, only the best on all levels. Thank you so much. Okay, we have a lot to talk about today. And Be'ez Hashem, an exciting class. And I'm excited to be giving this class. Okay. So tonight, this week is Parsha's Vayechi. The last Parsha of Parsha's um, Sefer Bereshis. Um, I'm not sure we're going to get to talk about much about Parsha's Vayechi. We are going to talk about tonight. Tonight is the beginning of a fast day, which is called Asara Betevis. And, uh, but maybe, depending, depending on the timing, we'll see if we can uh, connect it to Parshas Vayechi as well. In any case, um, the fast of Asara Betevis is, you know, on one level, tonight is really perhaps the darkest night of the year. Why is it the darkest night of the year? Because it's the beginning of the darkest day of the year. In what sense is today the darkest day of the year? Because we know that there are four fasts in which we fast for the, for the negative things, for the destructions, for the sorrowful things that happen to our people, all related to the destruction of the Beis Amigdash and the consequential exile, the Golus. From all of them, Asara Betevis is, in a certain degree, considered the most serious of them all. Halachically, let me show you the halacha relating to that. Had Asara Betevis, the tenth day of Tevis, coming out on Shabbos, we would fast even on Shabbos. That's how serious it is. There is no such a thing as fasting on Shabbos besides Yom Kippur, which is a biblical fast. All other fasts that are made by, called Divrei Kabbalah, made by the prophets, we don't fast on Shabbos. If it comes out on Shabbos, it's bumped to Sunday. Asara B'tavis, today's days can never come out on Shabbos based on our set calendar, because we don't set the calendar based on the sighting of the moon. In the time when they did set the calendar on the sighting of the moon, which was even after the destruction of the temple for quite a while, Asara Betavis could come out on Shabbos, 
And in those cases, they would fast even on Shabbos. And the reason is because it says in the Pasuk regarding to this day, in the middle of the day, in the midst of the day. And it's the same words that are used, is used regarding Yom Kippur. Where, regarding Yom Kippur, it says, whoever will not fast in the midst of this day. So just like we learn now, just like Yom Kippur is unshakable and unmovable, we can't move, you can't mess with Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur has to be on Yom Kippur. You can't suspend the fast of Yom Kippur to another day. The same is tonight, Asara B'tavis, you cannot push it off to another day. So that shows on the severity of the day. But why is this day so severe? Why is this fast day considered worse and more stringent than all the other fasts? So it's related to the idea that it's the beginning of all the trouble. There is something very, very, very harsh about the beginning. And today is the beginning. What's the beginning? Because we know that the, the destruction of the Holy Temple and the exile did not just come in one shot. It came step by step. God was patient and Hashem was waiting. Maybe we will do tshuva. So the first thing that happened, the first thing that happened was in the 10th of Tevis, commemorating today, and again, at the time of the first temple, Nebuchadnezzar's armies, the Babylonians, modern-day Iraq, um, set, laid siege on Jerusalem. They surrounded the city. And they ended up surrounding the city for three years. But the siege on the city began today. Now, on the 17th of Tammuz, which is the next fast later on in the year, in the summer, five months kind of from the 10th of Tevis, is when they actually breached the walls of the city. I guess two and a half years later. They, they breached the walls of the city, and then they destroyed the base of Middash on Tisha B'Av on the ninth day of Av. So this is the, and that's why we fast, sorry, for the siege of the city, 17th of Tammuz for the breaching of the walls of the city. Again, there's re other reasons of things that happen on all these days, but this is the main thing. The destruction of the Beis Amigdash, both the first and the second, when first during the Babylonian, through the Babylonian, second through the Romans, on the ninth of Av. And then we have one more fast related to destruction, the aftermath after the destruction. Because for a little while after the Babylonians destroyed the temple, they allowed Jews to have their own kind of semi-government in Israel. And then because of some kind of an assassination that happened, political aspects, nasty stuff, um, the great tzaddik, the ruler of the Jewish people at that time, the ones who stayed in Israel, called Gedalia, was killed. It's a date. It was actually killed on Rosh Hashanah, but we can't fast on Rosh Hashanah, so it's pushed off to the third day of Tishrei. And because that was kind of what, you know, put, knocked the nail, I don't want to say in the coffin, because it's not a coffin, but that was the final bang. And that's why it's also considered such a, a serious day. So when did the troubles begin? On the 10th of Tevis. So therefore the 10th of Tevis is a really, really dark day because it's the beginning. Always the beginning of something is considered in many ways, the worst. For that reason, we would fast even on Shabbos if it would come out, hypothetically, if it would be able to come out on Shabbos. A dark day. Yet, we know, the greater the darkness, the greater the light. How do you see that? So first of all, let's take a look at the very idea. When, on which day does it come out? It comes out on the 10th day of Tevis. Now what's Tevis? Tevis is the 10th month. The amazing thing comes out that this fast is the 10th day of the 10th month of the Hebrew calendar, beginning the month count from Nisan. 
Now in holiness, perfection is number 10. 10th day of the 10th month. Let's take a look at Yom Kippur. When is Yom Kippur? The 10th day of the 7th month. 7 is very special. 7 is a special number. The 10th day of the 7th month is very holy. Yom Kippur. Here we're talking about the 10th day of the 10th month. When God created the world, He used 10 utterances. When God gave the Torah, He spoke with 10 commandments. And the Mishnah goes through a whole lot of other things, how Hashem's favorite number is number 10. It's the number of completion. And if that's the case, the 10th month of the 10th day, the 10th day of the 10th month, it's got to be a very, very powerful day. A day of incredible godly potential, of the ultimate realization of a creation created by 10 utterances and then elevated through 10 commandments. 10 and 10. Doesn't get holier, doesn't get godlier, doesn't get more powerful than that. So we have to say that this day is a really, really, really super day. Another thing, not only is number 10 special regarding, not only is number 10 special regarding Stam, generally holiness, 10 is extra special regarding, regarding Mashiach. Because we know that when Mashiach will come, we will have many things regarding 10. Number one, we will hit the 10th note. I spoke a lot about the 8th note. Music has 7 notes today. It says that the kinor of, of, the, of the Beis Amigdosh, in the days of Mashiach, the harp or the violin in Mashiach is going to have 8 strands. A whole new level of music is going to be revealed. Like we spoke earlier this year, how 8 represents the transcendental, the infinite, the, the, that was beyond nature. But it says that there is a pasuk that we say, Ale Asor. Ale Novel, the Ale Asor. We play with a Novel, which is a type of instrument. The Ale Asor on an Asor. What's an Asor? Asor comes from the word Eser. It's a 10 string instrument. So it says that the Kinor that is going to be after Mashiach comes, that Kinor is going to have an upgrade. That Kinor is going to have an upgrade. And it's going to have 10 strands. So we're going to be going from 8 to 10. So we see the music of the future is of 10. We also know that um, when Mashiach comes, we are going to be counted the 10th time. There were nine times that the Jewish people were counted. The 10th one is going to be through Mashiach. And here's another one. We had nine red heifers. And the idea of a red heifer, of a paraduma, is to remove the stain of death, the impurity associated with death. And then we're going to have the tenth one. Maimonides tells us the tenth one is going to be done by Moshiach. And what does it really mean? Number ten. The tenth one is not going to eradicate the impurity coming from the contact with death. The tenth one is going to eradicate death itself. So, number ten. So much about Mashiach. Number ten. And here we are, Asara Betevis, the tenth day of the tenth month. So we have to say that there is a secret here. There's a very great secret. Because we always know the greatest light comes from the greatest darkness. In God's perfect world, in God's God who is infinitely good, without a streak of darkness, or without a streak of evil, chas v'shalom, God forbid, in him, couldn't have created something that is really bad. 
So if things appear bad, difficult, harsh, extremely painful, it's only a sign that they will lead to an incomprehensible goodness that for whatever reason, only in God can understand this, and maybe we will understand it one day, we would never have been able to reach to such goodness without going through the darkness and the pain. So we know that all the dark days are really good days. So we know, ta'alacha, it's, it's a pasuk, it's a verse. These very four dark days of fasting, of self-infliction, in which we go through every year, to mourn for the destruction of the Beis Amigdash, for Hashem's re- disconnect from this world. So we know that all of these fast days are, are going to be, it says, it says in, in, in Scripture, it says so in, Pas- in the Pasuk, are going to be converted, they're going to be turned, not only are we going to forget the dark days, but those very days commemorating darkness are going to be flipped over to become great holidays, days of celebration. Not only are they going to be holidays, but they're going to be greater than the other holidays, greater than the three pilgrimage holidays. The celebration is going to be unbelievable. So if it's true about all of these sad days, it has to be true of, in a sense, the darkest of them, the day that initiates all the days of darkness, which is Asara Batavis, it must be true about this day as, as well, that it's holding the secret of the greatest light. Well, we see regarding Tishabav, we see that as dark as Tishabav is, the destruction of the temple, Tishabav, the destruction of the Beis Amigdash, as we say, and the onset of this, what seems to be almost like a never-ending exile, with all the suffering and all the pain that just doesn't stop. And all of this, um, as Tisha B'av is bad as it is, we know the real secret of Tisha B'av is that Mashiach is born on Tisha B'av. The sages tell us Mashiach is born on Tisha B'av. And that's why at, at Mincha time on Tisha B'av we say, we're already speaking of comfort, Nachem, we're already comforting. And you know the end of Tisha B'av is the darkest time of Tisha B'av. That's when the, 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 the ones who destroyed it set, 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 set the temple on fire. Actually, at the darkest time of Tishba, it wasn't the night before, it wasn't during the day. That was the day, all during the day, they were, you know, they were in the midst of their destruction, but they didn't set it ablaze. It went up in flames only at the last moments of Tishba. And it's exactly at that time, Mincha time, in the afternoon, late afternoon, it's exactly at that time that we already are singing Nachem, we're already singing comfort because we hear already God's comfort because Mashiach is born. As we explained in earlier classes, it doesn't mean because there is a destruction, that's why Moshiach is born. It doesn't mean, okay, now that it's destroyed, we need Moshiach. It's the opposite. Because Moshiach is born, that's why it was destroyed. What does that mean? From the very beginning, the harshness, the darkness, the, the destruction, is because God wants to build a stronger one, a better one. The first two could not last. They were not permanent. They, didn't, they, they were not built with materials that can make them last forever. Spiritually and physically, they did not have the endurance to last forever. So we did a demolition in order to build a better building. In other words, Moshiach's space on Megdash is going to be far superior to the first two temples. So we had to demolish those in order to build this one. It's taking 2,000 years of preparation for the third one. Can you imagine how great that third one is going to be? It's going to be forever. It's going to bring everlasting peace and harmony and light and joy and happiness. Wipe away every last tear and every pain and every broken heart is going to be healed. Everything is going to be fixed once that temple is built any moment, literally momentarily. So 
Um, that's Tisha B'Av. So now, let's go, if Mashiach is born on Tisha B'Av, so what happened on the 10th of Tevis, which is the precursor for Tisha B'Av? It's what leads us to Tisha B'Av. It's what enabled Tisha B'Av to happen. So what happened on Tisha B'Av, on Asarah B'Tevis, on the good side? So the Rebbe says an interesting thing, the Lubavitcher Rebbe says an interesting thing. Well, if Mashiach is born on Tisha B'Av, before a person is born, their first, their first, in a fetus, fetal state, this first, they're here in a state of pregnancy, or they are the, the, the pregnant state, and what precedes the pregnancy, what, in, what makes the pregnancy, the conception. The mother conceives, she's pregnant, and then she gives birth. Tisha B'Av is the birth. How long is a pregnancy? Usually nine months. Nine months of pregnancy. However, we know that Moshe Rabbeinu, the first redeemer, was only, his mother was pregnant with him only seven months. Moshe. And we know that Moshe, the first redeemer, is also the energy, not literally the person, but the spiritual power of the final redemption is also from Moshe Rabbeinu. So if Moshe Rabbeinu, the first redeemer, was his mother was pregnant with him for seven, it was a seven-month seven term. So Mashiach Tzedkenu could also be a seven-month term. So if seven months before Tisha B'Av is the tenth day of Tevis, which is tonight. So the first germination of Mashiach in the world, the first seed of Mashiach in the world, when does it drop into this world? When does the world conceive Mashiach? not born yet, it's not even revealed yet, it's just at the very, very initial stages, but it's the most potent moment of a person's life, is the moment that they're conceived in this world. It's, again, we're dealing with pure, pure potential, but with at that moment of conception, nothing will ever happen. So this is the most potent moment. When is that? Tonight. Now it doesn't mean, doesn't have to mean literally that Moshiach is born on Tisha B'Av in the physical sense and he was conceived in. It means, it could mean in the spiritual dynamics of what's taking place on Asara B'Tevis, nine, seven months before Tisha B'Av, conception of Moshiach, the seed of Moshiach in the world. Tonight is a super powerful Moshiach night. It's an incredible, incredible moment. Now the truth is, Regarding all, all the fast days, what happens now is as follows. What's the conclusion? We have an external shell of darkness, of pain, of suffering. And we commemorate it through painful commemoration, which means certain affliction. We make ourselves uncomfortable. We have to say extra prayers. We're supposed to do tshuva, repentance, and so on and so forth. It's not supposed to be a very joyful, happy day. It's a very serious day. It's a very... Um, it's a, generally, it was all these fast days are kind of melancholy days. That's, that's, the, that's the nature of the day. Because what? There is a... The day itself is, represents pain and darkness. Disconnect from God. Exile. Separation. But we know, as we're saying, the seed, the inner core... The inner, inner point, the nucleus of the day is the greatest light. But here's the thing. 2,000 years and we haven't penetrated the shell. 
2,000 years and we haven't penetrated the shell yet. Our attitude towards these days, as I spoke many times, has changed in the later years, the last 100 years, the last 70 years, the last 50 years, the last 30 years. It's changing that our attitudes towards these days is to commemorate them by looking more at the panemius, looking, especially since the revelation of Hasidus, Hasidus negated sadness and always tried to highlight the positive. And deeper than that, Hasidus is the precursor to the Mashiach. It's actually the beginning of the lights of Mashiach. So we start sensing and feeling the inner seed, the inner light that's in these dark days. But after everything is said and done, it's still a fast day. It's still not a yomtif in the literal sense. You don't hit the music and dance all day. We spend the day in introspection and somewhat of a certain sadness, commemorating the Tsaris. That means we haven't penetrated to its essence, to the core. And we're still waiting. Asara Betavis, also like that. No, Asara Betavis. It's still a sad day. It's not yet the celebration of the days of Mashiach. But here's the secret. Because this is the, the most intense, most potent, the greatest light, for that reason it's interesting that, in this, that over here we can access the good of the day to a greater degree than all the other days, than all the other three fast days. The Asara Batavis, we can, we can connect to its nucleus, to its light, easier than the others. In what sense? So here's the amazing thing. It's because the purpose of the day is more ready, is more, is more is more pronounced on this fast day more than the others. And let me explain why. By the other fast days, something on that day itself, something inherently destructive and tragic happened. We know that God caused us pain, but deeper behind the pain is really love. Like a parent, when a parent might might have to rebuke a child, parent might have to give the child a little slap because the child ran across the street, a little two-year-old, and they need to get a little punishment, so the parent might have to give them a little slap that they know they're not going to do something dangerous again. Inside, the parent's heart is full of love, full of caring. Externally, it's a stinging slap. So what happened on those days, Tisha B'Av, destruction of the temple, um, uh, Shavasa Batamas, they breached the walls of Jerusalem. Um, an assassination of one of the great rabbis one of the great leaders of the Jewish people something bad happened that in a sense in it, on its own is bad and, and not fixable what's the purpose? the purpose is if we do tshuva we will get a new temple if we do tshuva we will, we will get new walls, or we will repair or, or rebuild the walls that, the, that they breached, that they broke open. Or we hope that Gedalia ben Achukam will come back in the resurrection together with all the other tzaddikim. Fine. But the negative is the negative. Something bad has happened. The purpose of all those things were to bring us to do tshuva, but that's the purpose. But the actual event itself is painful and dark and hurtful. When Nebuchadnezzar came and laid siege on the cities of Jerusalem, 
Jerusalem remained intact. No one touched the city. In the city itself, business as usual. They probably got the news that the guys are surrounding the city. There was a little, I'm sure there was some anxiety. They weren't too happy about it. But the people in the city itself, the city was intact. Nothing was disturbed. Not only was the city intact, the walls were untouched. Everything about Yerushalayim was still standing. The walls were still there. What, what, what happened? They laid siege. The consequences of the siege is no one can go into the city, no one can go out of the city. So they can't bring food supplies, water, and all these things. So all these things, it's a terrible thing. But on the day of Asara Betavis itself, had the, the Babylonian armies left the next day, besides some potato chip bags that would have been left strewn around outside, maybe some leftover popcorn or whatever that they were eating, or beer bottles, and a little mess, there wouldn't be any harm because they didn't touch anything. They were standing around. What was the purpose of them standing around? To squeeze us. To squeeze us to do what? To do tshuva. So in a sense, what's really happening? A non-Jewish army is coming to assist the Jewish people to do tshuva. Their intentions are other, but that doesn't make sense from God's perspective. A non-Jewish army is coming to inspire us to do tshuva. So what, what, what's the bad? There's no bad in it. Because we didn't do tshuva, it later evolved into something terrible and into something bad. So the Asara Betavis itself, the day itself, when we're commemorating the occurrence that happened on this day itself, all we have is an added goodness. We Jews are going about our Judaism kind of in a relaxed manner, not taking it too seriously. Comes a powerful army led by Nebuchadnezzar who's, in, who's calling to us and say, hey Jews, shape up. Become a little more observant. Get more involved. Deepen your relationship with God. That's all that happened. Again, it caused anxiety. That's if, we were, if we're not going to do tshuva. But in and of itself, it wasn't bad. So the day itself, the purpose of the day, the internal element of the day is written all over the day. You don't have to scratch off the surface to find the goodness. The goodness is there immediately. It's excessive. Especially, especially tonight. Tomorrow the fast begins. This is a fast that doesn't start tonight. It's, it's a fast, not like Tisha B'Av, it starts the night before. Yom Kippur starts the night before. It's a start. So tomorrow already in the morning, we begin to sense the negativity of the day. You can't have your coffee. Okay, so you're already sensing it's, 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 it's a dark day. I don't have my coffee. So I'm already uncomfortable. There's something already squeezing, something hurting. There's a little pain in my life because of Asara Betavis. But tonight is already Asara Betavis. There is nothing negative yet. Right now, you can go have a lavish meal. There is no problem. According to halacha, no restriction. You can have a glass of wine. You can do, there's no restrictions in your life. As long as, as long as it's kosher, you're okay. Tonight you only have one thing. It's Asara Betavis. It's the 10th day of the 10th month with the potential and of Mashiach like no other day. The conception of Mashiach in this world, the conceiving of that energy, this powerful day with no negativity. The whole power of Mashiach lies in these next few hours that we have now as we are 
passing through at this moment. That's awesome. Obviously, it takes the Lubavitcher Rebbe to figure that out, to see it that way. But that's where we are right now. That's what's unique in Asara B'Tavis, in the 10th of Tavis, that the good of it, the light of it, is not, is, not a, is not covered. Only later it becomes a negative day, but not on the day itself. And I would say that um, this that we say that later, that means tomorrow it starts becoming negative, that too is past. That too we're over with. This year. Because we are living in very, very awesome times. We're living in incredible moments right now. And we must be aware. I would say if the people, if this only this recording can get out to many people, it's time to take our head out of the sand. It's really, really time. It's simply not fear anymore to the Eberster. It's not fear to God to pretend that we're blind and we're not noticing the incredible miracles that the Eberster is doing for the Jewish people. The process of redemption that's happening now, it's in full swing. And really, 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 we, you have to do yourself, it's a real disservice to try to pretend that it's not happening. And I'd like to spend the rest of the class today a little bit discussing this. How it's so, you know, where we stand at this moment. The, the awesomeness. The importance of waking up, recognizing. Waking up and smelling Mashiach. That's what it is. That's where we have to, we, have, we, we need to, we need, we, it's, it's about time. It's about time to recognize the miracles of the Giyula. We should be walking around literally singing and dancing in the streets. I mean, I'll tell you an interesting thing. I mean, you can... You can be very happy, you can be a little anxious. Last night is the first night. I, I was very tired, I went to sleep early and I woke up in the middle of the night. I couldn't sleep, so I was holding, watching some rabbi talking about, it's a very interesting, Rabbi Kesson talks a lot about the times that are happening. I was listening to him and I fell asleep with him and I woke up and I was listening to the rest. And, um, whatever, I woke up, then a few hours later I fell asleep, woke up. And I never felt such stress and anxiety in a very long... I mean, I used to get anxiety when I had to pay the bills of Mayan and I couldn't pay them, but I got used to the miracles today, so it literally doesn't phase me one iota. So I don't feel it, so I'm surprised. My entire back felt literally like I couldn't move. I literally... Could, I woke up, I, you know, you just... And you know, it's, a, it's not a physical thing. You know, it's simply an emotional situation that's literally paralyzing me. I, was, I felt horrible. And I was realizing the source of my anxiety. It finally hit me that it's really happening. Okay? And that's after I'm sitting here and speaking about this for the last three years, getting hoarse, saying this week after week after week, but it's actually dawned upon me that it's actually for real, now. Why am, I, why am I anxious? I'm not anxious because of the war of Gog and Magog. I'm not anxious because of all this bloodshed that people talk about and the fear of Iran's retaliation and all this, all these things. I don't think the Eberster took us through the exile just to, God forbid, cause right by the coming of Mashiach a lot of bloodshed. I don't believe so. I believe the Geul is going to happen like we've seen Bechesed Uberachamim with kindness, with mercy. And we're not going to see darkness anymore. 
The Abishter is going to fight our wars for us, as I'm going to quote to you soon from the Midrash. And you see the Midrash literally happening. There's no, there's no question about that. What gives me the anxiety is that I know that it could be in a day, it could be in a week, it could be in a month. I'm not exactly sure, I don't have a date. That we are all going to file by Melech HaMoshiach, holy face. And he's going to look at us and penetrate every layer of our being. And we're going to have to face Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. All the Nevi'im. All the Tzaddikim. And we will be, and I, I don't know about you, but I will be so embarrassed. I used to think I'll run and hide, but I don't think I can hide. I don't think anybody will be able to hide. They won't be able to, they'll, they'll, you know, they'll find us. It's not a matter, and nobody's punished. It's just a matter of shame of where we're standing. We're, you know, we're coarse. Where our minds and hearts are very involved in just materialistic things, physical enjoyments. We have such opportunity to do so many mitzvahs and to learn so much Torah and to do so much godly things. We're living in the most important time of all of history. And yet, how much time did I waste? How much time am I not doing what I'm supposed to be doing? And it hit me so much last night that literally till about an hour after I woke up, Baruch Hashem, I don't know. I was, I was hoping that it's not going to take my meditation to take away this anxiety. It went away on its own, thank God. I don't know what took it away. But what I'm saying is that even though I've been speaking about this nonstop, it's actually hitting the, the, the events that have been happening in the last couple of weeks, especially what happened in the last week, is becoming so, it's becoming so intense. It's becoming so strong and so intense that so it hurts me and it bothers me to see so many Jews seem to be clueless. People are walking like garnished. Garnished. So I hope, I wish, and I hope this particular shear gets out there and people listen. So let's talk a little bit. Why, what is so special about this Asara Batavis? Connecting it primarily, particularly to this day, to Asara Batavis, and why this Asara Batavis could be different. So the idea is as follows you know, when we were sent into Golos, when we were sent into exile, you know, there was a Big, big Mechitza Shel Barzel. There was a big, big iron curtain separating between the Jewish people and the third base of Migdash. And Jerusalem and Yerushalayim. We were literally, there was a big Golas, a big monstrous exile, which spiritually is a great darkness, blocking us from the temple, blocking us from our intimacy with God, represented in the base of Migdash. And... Um, it translates from a spiritual darkness, translated into ginormous forces that stood between a Jew, the Jewish people, and the Third Temple, and the Beis Amigdash, and Eretz Yisroel, and Yerushalayim, and the Beis Amigdash. As we went through all the darkness of our exile, for 1,700, 1,800 years, as we've already did the purifications, the rectifications that we needed to do in the Gullahs. Whether it's purifying our own sins, that's on a, on a very simple level. Whether it's impacting the world, whether it's raising sparks of holiness from the more Kabbalistic understanding of things. Whatever it is, after 17, 1800 years, the exile thinned out thinner and thinner and thinner. So the barrier that stood between the Jewish people and Yerushalayim and the Beis Amigdash and Eretz Yisrael became less and less and less and less. So we see already in the 17, 1800s, 
there started to become a much greater aliyah, a permanent aliyah to Eretz Yisrael. Yidin, Jewish people started going up to Eretz Yisrael, first in small groups, and then it grew. The, yish, the yishuv, yishuvim. Now, one thing is for sure, there never ever ceased to be a Jewish presence in Eretz Yisrael. It was always there, but always very, very, very much a little thread. To most of the Jews, Lashana Hababa Yerushalayim was a distant, 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 impossible dream. I'm not even talking about Lashana Hababa Yerushalayim with Mashiach Tzedkeinu. I'm talking about simply going to the land of Israel, visiting it, seeing the holy earth, being able to touch its holy earth, even just to give it a kiss and to go back to the blood-soaked lands of Europe. Jews can only dream of that possibility if and maybe it was, it was literally a fantasy. In the 1700s, 1800s, Jews started going up more and more and more. It started flourishing. And in the 1900s, and then it started to flourish. They started infrastructure, building, and so on and so forth. After the greatest darkness our people have ever had, which was the Holocaust, which, if anything, needed to bring about a tikkun, that sped up, that increased that tikkun, like a millionfold, with any, on any level, the six million Jews that died did an incredible purification that needed to be done in the world. Again, I'm not excusing the Holocaust or whatever. I'm just saying that one thing we can't say is that it did not have something to do with the ultimate redemption. After that, Jews kind of, the doors opened wide in Eretz Yisrael. The Jewish, Jewish people were able to reclaim to a certain degree their land. Now, have Eretz Yisrael as great, uh, I know there's different opinions regarding this, I might really want to get into that, you know, others believe that the starting of the state of Israel is already part of the actual fulfillment of the Hishalta de Geula, the beginning of the redemption. Others said it's totally evil and so on and so forth and we can't have any part of it. And again, I'm not going into the argument. Um, according to most and many, many great rabbis, according to the Chabad rabbis as well, um, an opportunity was missed. In other words, had there been a government that would have recognized the Ebersh there, had there been a government that would have not have been created um, and, and established in, 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 in defiance or, or with, with, the, with the... Had there been a government that would have been established recognizing God and inviting Hashem into uh, Torah observance, into... Into the, into the picture, it's possible that uh, Moshiach could have been here in 1948. Uh, because it was secularized, because it was decided not to add Hashem's name into Hatikva and so on and so forth, and to make it just about a nation, uh, um, just nationalistic, but without any trace of religiosity, of belief in God, so on and so forth, it did not, it did not fulfill the, 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 the uh, criteria for it to be a, a part of the beginning of the actual coming of Moshiach. However, one thing that did happen is because of this, it enabled thousands of Jews to come back to Eretz Yisrael and to build the land. And immediately, because Jews came back to Eretz Yisrael and because it was in our possession to a great degree, the unholy forces, the exile, the golos, which represents entities and forces of darkness in the world that prevent 
Mashiach. They prevent God's descent into this world. They are the descendants of the snake, the descendants of evil. They're all part of the Yetzahara, the evil element that is, exists within the world. Did whatever they can to try to stop it. They were very shaken up. So immediately in 1948, when, when Israel was declared a state, uh, they were, we were attacked. And I don't know exactly, seven armies, eight armies, 13 armies, I'm not exactly sure what was the number, if anybody knows what the number was, of the Arab states that participated in that attack. And one thing is no one can deny, there was incredible miracles, and it was the God's assistance that the handful of Jews that were not that did not have the right weapons and did not have, they were outgunned and outnumbered, outnumbered, talking about not, tiny few little Jews against massive, massive armies. And yet, they won 1948, and then I think, and what was the next one in 1956 or 1957? And the greatest of them all in 1967, when we received Iratika, the old city, in a sense, Temple Mount was already in our hands. The Kotel Hamaravi. And it was explicit miracles that had just... Hashem basically showed Himself like He hasn't showed Himself for the Jewish people for 2,000 to 3,000 years since the wars of King David and the, and the, and the, and the, and the wars of Yeshua bin Nun. Spectacular, spectacular love of God in which He showed to the Jewish people. And continuing in the Yom Kippur War, and war after war, incredible. But you saw the forces of evil stood with all their hatred and with all their animosity to stop, to block the building of Eretz Yisrael and primarily, again, what is it? Because Eretz Yisrael, Beis Amigdash, Harabais, returning of the Beis Amigdash Ashlishi, this is going to put an end to darkness, it's going to put an end to evil, it's going to create Hashem's presence in this world forever and ever. So of course we understand they're going to fight it. Alongside with this physical war coming against the Jewish people from the Muslim world, from the Arabs around the small country of Israel, they were joined through powerful political forces that assisted them, not in the military pressure, but exerting enormous political pressure on the small little state of Israel and the Jewish people that we should relinquish and give back and give, not give, I don't want to say give back, not giving back, but give up land. And, 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 but they wouldn't, one thing they wouldn't do. They knew that Jerusalem is sacred. So they didn't even want to mention Jerusalem. They knew that Jerusalem has been, we were been praying for Jerusalem. They wouldn't even have the chutzpah to mention Yerushalayim. When they were pushing that we should make negotiations with the PLO and so on and so forth, they kind of would always leave out Jerusalem because they were afraid. They didn't even have the chutzpah to do it. That was amazing. And then came the 1990s. And what happened in the 1990s? This is very, very, very important. In 1990, we hit a critical time in history. Those coming to the Shir heard this many times, but I'm going to repeat it again because it's an important idea. In 1990, we, it became midday of Friday. The six, the world, God created the world in six days. Kabbalists tell us that the six days correspond to six millennia, six, six cosmics, a week, a cosmic week. Every week is a thousand years. So in 1990, it's the year Tavshinun, it's the Hebrew year of 5,500 and um, 
no, 5,750. 5,750. So it's, there's 500 years of night, 500 years of day. So 500 years of night, 5,500. That's when the Baal Shem Tov appeared. 250 years later, 557, 57, what's with me? 5750 equals 1990. It's midday of Friday. And we all know on Friday, midday, you start preparing for Shabbos. At that time, the Lubavitcher Rebbe made an announcement to the world. The Lubavitcher Rebbe who took responsibility for all the Jewish people. The Lubavitcher Rebbe who sent out his emissaries across the world to prepare for the redemption. For many great rabbis, everybody was building, busy building, rebuilding their communities with Torah and a lot of great. The Lubavitcher Rebbe looked out after the Jewish people and his mind is set on one thing, on the redemption of the Jewish people. And therefore, he literally does a kibbutz gali, spiritually. He really sets up a network un, unparalleled. No other Jewish leader ever did that in history. To reach the entire world, to reach every Jew, to get every year to do a mitzvah as far as possible, the operation is still working, to reach Jews, every single Jew, to connect every Jew to the redemption. Amazing. This Lubavitcher Rebbe says to the world, very clearly, not at one time, not two times, not quietly to one Yid in a private audience, but to the entire world. And he says, Yidin Zaltivisn, you should know the time of the redemption has arrived, the Giyaz Mangul Aschem, the time of the redemption has arrived. Now, two things that the Rebbe pointed then, and I think now this, this, it's becoming so clear, the, the, the significance of these two things. The first one is that the Iron Curtain collapsed. You're talking about the exile. There's two parts. Yidnar is stuck in Golos. Number two, they're going to Eretz Yisrael. Once we come to Eretz Yisrael, we have forces that are trying to stop us from holding Eretz Yisrael. They're trying to stop us from taking possession of Jerusalem and building. That's the second part. That's, that's phase number two. That's closer to Mashiach. But there is phase number one. The powerful forces of exile that kept us thousands of miles away, hundreds of miles away, trapped in the vicious... Um, 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 prisons of exile, the last fortress, the last holdout of that klippa was the, was the Soviet Union. Trapping three million Jews, three million Jews, three million Jews, more Jews than were in Egypt, or than more Jews that left Egypt. And in 1990, miraculously, miraculously, with one bullet, the entire Soviet Union collapsed. And Jews were freed to go up to Eretz Yisrael. Not only did it collapse, but the Soviets themselves, the very, who weren't the Soviets anymore, but the Russians themselves, spent money and assistance to help the Jews leave. Literally an exodus, like it was back then. This is basically the last wall of Golos that's blocking Jews from Eretz Yisrael has collapsed. When? 1990. Exactly Erev Shabbos. As we hit Chatzos, midday, preparations for Shabbos are in full intensity. Oh, so what happens in the world? The Klippas, the unholy, sense and feel it, and they get tzedrudled. Tzedrudled means they get wired, riled up. They get all excited. So a tyrant... A real wicked monster, a person responsible for the death of hundreds of thousands of people, who has been a menace to Israel, who has seen himself as the reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar, the one who destroyed the temple. 
who himself, the Zohar says that Nebuchadnezzar is going to come back into this world, certain wicked people, God will bring them back into the world before Mashiach comes in order to humiliate them, in order to destroy them, in order that they should be punished. Saddam Hussein, the tyrant of Baghdad, saw himself as the one who's going to take back Jerusalem, is going to destroy Jerusalem. Like, he literally saw himself as a modern day Nebuchadnezzar. And it's very possible that he was, it makes all the sense that he is actually that soul of Nebuchadnezzar who destroyed the Holy Temple. He had armies that were named with, with, in Arabic representing the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's important because we'll see that happening again today. Armies named with the name of Jerusalem, not in, in, in the name that they use for Jerusalem. And he, for whatever reason, at, right at that time, made the move. He, I guess he felt he's going to get more powerful. He can only set himself on the oils of Saudi Arabia. But for that, he has to go through Kuwait. So he, he came, his armies came rolling into Kuwait. As he came and he annexed Kuwait, claiming that it's his, and he was threatening Saudi Arabia, it caused a powerful, um, you know, the whole world is relying on the gas, on, on fuel. Now the United States and others are becoming energy, energy independent, but then we were still very much dependent on the Middle East, on the oils and so on and so forth. Now there's a powerful midrash. Let's stop for a moment. There's a powerful midrash where the midrash says, it's a midrash in Yalkut Shemayni. Omer Rabbi Yitzchak, so says Rabbi Yitzchak. Shon Hashem Elach HaMashiach Nigloboi, the year that King Mashiach will reveal himself. Kol Malchei Umoysa Oilam, all the kings of the nations of the world, Mizgadim Zebazeh, will, 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 Mizgara means they are, enti not enticing, they're, they're, uh, in Yiddish you say Chepenzech, but I need, a, I need a word for this shear here. Can't say Chepenzech, what? Provoking. provoking, that's what I'm looking for. They're provoking each other. Melech Paras Mizgara Melech Arvi. The king of Persia starts to, to provoke the king of Arabia. Now Persia is Iran. Okay? So it's not Iraq. But he was the, king, he was the melech, he's the king, he's the ruler of, of, of Baghdad, of Iraq. So what happens? The king of, of Arvi, the king of Arabia, goes to the king of Edom. Or here it says, some people have a Girsa Edom, others have the Girsa Aram. Ram means exalted. Superpowers. Little Eitzamah, to go get, seek advice. Okay. In other words, what's happening over there? The king of Arabia is being threatened by the king of Persia. Not knowing what to do, he goes to his, to Edom. Or to Aram, the superpowers. To seek advice. They get very, very scared. And... Here it says, in the message it says that the king of Persia actually destroys the world. Um, we'll soon see that whenever the Lubavitcher Rebbe quoted this midrash and associated with that occurrence, he left out those words. He just didn't, he didn't, he didn't read those words in the midrash. You can read it, his intentions are to destroy the world. You can't say it means in the literal sense that he destroys the world for a simple reason. Because it says right after that, that all the nations of the world are terrified and they're scared. If they're destroyed already, then they're not scared anymore. 
Salameni isn't scared of anybody anymore right now because he doesn't exist anymore. Right? So it says, Misrashim, they're all terrified, or Mizbalim, and they're confused. They fall on their faces. And they gripped with fears like a woman in labor. And they're terrified. And the Jewish people are terrified. Misrashim and Mizbalim are scared and confused. And they say, Where should we come? Where should we go? Where can we hide? What should we do? And God says to the Jewish people, the Abishter says to the Jewish people, Banai, my children. First of all, you have to understand, if God is talking, who hears him talking? How is Hashem going to say to the Jewish people? I'm asking you. Anybody learning them, how is Hashem going to speak to the Jewish people? The answer is Hashem is going to speak to the Jewish people like he has always been speaking to the Jewish people, through a prophet. The only way God will speak to the Jewish people is through a prophet. And he will tell them what? Altiro, don't be afraid. All that I have done, I have only done it for your sake. Oh, are we going to see soon how much this is true? But wait. Whatever I've done, I have not done only for your sake. Why are you afraid? Altiro, don't be afraid. The time of your redemption has arrived. And this redemption is not like all the other redemptions. All the other redemptions were temporary redemptions. But this redemption is going to last forever. That's the end. So we have the Abishter telling the Jewish people, don't be afraid. Every, don't be afraid, nothing to fear. It's all okay. I got you covered. God says, I got you covered. Don't be afraid. This whole thing, the whole world is turning over. It's only for your sake. I'm actually helping you with this war. Take it easy. Relax. It's good. Chill. It's all going to be fine. God says that. Amazing. What does it say right after that? Shonur Rabbi Seinu, the Medrash continues. That's the year that Melech HaMashiach reveals himself. Then the Medrash continues. At the time that King Mashiach comes. He stands on the roof of the Holy Temple. And he tells the Jewish people, the Oimer, and he says, My humble ones, the time of your redemption has arrived. Another thing, literally at the time that Mashiach comes, Mashiach tells the Jewish people, my humble ones, don't be afraid. Mashiach is coming. If you don't believe me. So we have a scenario where Mashiach is talking to the Jewish people and the Jewish people don't believe him. This is also an important idea. They don't believe him. He says, look at my light, it's shining all over the world. Don't you see my light that's shining? It's a Mordechai David song. That's how we know it's true. Right? Mordechai and David sings it. Right? Okay. Fine. That's a midrash. At the time when all of this was going on, the Lubavitcher Rebbe started quoting this midrash. Week after week after week. He started in the summer of 1990. Went into, the, into 1991. Their whole time. Kept on quoting this midrash. And telling the Jewish people that the Eretz Yisrael is the safest place in the world. Don't be afraid. Telling all the boys in yeshiva, don't come home. Sending people, you want to travel there, go there, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Israel is the safest place, you can go, don't be afraid. Stood there like a father comforting his child that's scared, like a teacher, like a king, like a prophet. Unbelievable. I knew this story, but I didn't know this story till today. What happened in the end? The end was, there was a massive coalition led by President Bush where we gathered together, and they warned Israel, keep out of it, because if Israel would join, 
then they're going to break up the whole coalition because the Arabs won't want to fight along with Israel. So Israel, you keep out of it. You keep your soldiers out. Stay put. Now what happened was Saddam Hussein immediately, immediately warned, what was his warning? He said, you mess with me. Do you now you try to pull me out of Kuwait? What am I going to do? I'm going to rain down fire and brimstone. I'm going to release hell on Israel. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to bring the worst suffering imaginable. Israel was terrified. Terrified. The world was terrified. Saddam Hussein at that time still had connections with the Russians. Russia had now had a change of thing, but they were still an independent country. You don't know what he has. And primarily, everybody knew that Saddam Hussein has chemical and biological weapons. And that through the, the people living in Eretz HaKodesh, the few million Jews, probably about five million Jews living in Israel, or four and a half million Jews at that time, literally into panic. They did not know what to do. So Israel began giving out gas masks. People stood in lines for hours, terrified, because the moment the war would start, they knew that he's capable. Fine. In the end, he did shoot scuds. 39 scuds came across onto Israel. Fell on buildings, buildings exploded, everybody walked out okay. Everybody. Miracles of one such scud fell on an American base, and there was a lot, a lot of deaths. 39 scuds fell. Not all of them fell on buildings, but quite a few did fall. And people walked out as if nothing happened. The only injuries in Israel was from the people who panicked and had heart attacks because they panicked. And that's what the Rebbe was trying to avoid by telling people, don't be afraid. Later that year, the Rebbe started telling us, later, the Lubavitch Rebbe began to say that you should know that just like we saw miracles, you should know that this is all a sign for the greater miracles that are coming. For the greater miracles that are coming. The miracles of the redemption. You saw miracles now? I ran on the floor, you saw miracles? The Rebbe then predicted the war would be over on Purim. That's exactly when the war was over, on Purim. Saddam was devastated. His armies were devastated. He wasn't completely captured and killed at that time. There was a second Gulf War, which happened 13 years later, after 9-11. But initially, he was devastated. He was humiliated. He said it's going to be the mother of all wars. He's going to destroy everybody. No one will be able to budge him out of Kuwait. He was destroyed in a very big way. Story, fine. Till today, I did not know the story of what happened over there. And I want to share with you some inside story. The Rebbe writes in a letter, listen to this. In the 25th of Ador, the Lubavitcher Rebbe writes a letter to the Jewish people. My, my brothers, the children, and the daughters of Israel. The Rebbe writes this letter to every single Jew, you and me and everybody, till today. And what does he write in that letter? We have to take a look at the unbelievable miracles that God has done for us. He claims the miracles are much greater than the miracles of Purim. Purim, they were much more enclosed in nature. The Rebbe said, now the miracles are beyond nature completely. Purim, you had to go, it, had, it took 12 years for the entire story. You had to put together all the dots and then you can see the miracle. But here you can see it obviously. And the Rebbe goes on to say two lines and this is stunning. The Rebbe says that the miracles you see are one thing. Those who know the inside story, those who know the inside story, know that the miracles are so much greater so much greater than what we know, can really appreciate. Who knows the inside story? Who knows the inside story? The Lubavitcher Rebbe knows the inside story. No one else knows, knows the inside story until after the war. Until 13, 14 years later, especially after the second war, we have all the documents 
and everything that was written and everything that was kept in that is kept in the UN archives, all the stuff that they found in Iraq after the first Gulf War. And let me share with you some information that you definitely did not hear till today. I read this article today by someone who has military expertise in Israeli, who's the big guy in the military, and he wrote an article, and I read it today, and it blew my mind, and said, I have to share this with you. It's in modern Hebrew, so I couldn't really translate everything. I begged someone if he can take that article and translate it in English, it will give me more access. But actually, half an hour before the shear, I sat and I read and I wrote down some notes to try to be as accurate as I can with this information. So let's start over here. During the Iran-Iraq War, Okay, Saddam Hussein had a much smaller army than the Iranians. The Iranians are much, far more powerful, powerful, they had a much greater army. Saddam Hussein, to compensate for his smaller armies, and therefore outnumbered by the Iranians, used chemical weapons. 110,000 Iranian soldiers were either killed or wounded. That's a lot of people. 110,000 soldiers were killed or wounded by chemical weapons. He had mustard gas and he had nerve gas, sarin and VX. You should never know what these things are. Then after the war was over, and this was built by him through German factories that he had built across Iraq. We'll soon see. After the war, he didn't like what the Kurds, the Kurds were kind of favoring the, Iranian, the Iranians. So he lobbed over some of this special stuff that he was so proud of that he owns. He sprayed them with some of this either biological chemical stuff 7,000 Kurds were killed and tens of thousands of them were maimed and injured. Okay. Now, everybody knows that everybody was yelling at Bush after the second Persian Gulf War. Now, why did you go and attack Iraq? Iraq had no chemical weapons. They didn't have because the inspectors went and after they couldn't find them. That was after the second war. In 1991, there was one war, and in 2003 was the second Gulf War. So in between then, the UN inspectors, as part of the ceasefire, after Iraq was forced to concede, after they were beaten really badly, they had to let in UN inspectors. UN inspectors spent eight years, eight years in Iraq, and during that time, they destroyed tons and tons and tons of chemical and biological weapons. In the archives of the UN and the US and the archives of the USA Army, and in the media, you can see thousands of images, of photos, of chemical and biological weapons that were stashed. They had, I mentioned earlier, that Germans built factories that produced, listen, they had, you know what the capacity was they, would, they were operating before the Gulf War? They made 10 ton of various poisonous gas per day. Ton! 10 ton of gas, of poisonous gas per day they were producing. Altogether, they had 4,000 tons of 
of, of chemical weapons, no, I'm sorry, not of net weapons, of gas, 30,000 chemical weapons was in their arsenal. Again, based on the estimations after the war, 30,000 weapons. So, and here was an amazing thing. It was discovered that right at the beginning of that war, right at the beginning of the war, four air bases, not I'm saying right at the beginning, even before the war began, again, there was a day that the United States, they had given them a deadline by when he must pull out of Kuwait. That if he doesn't, then he'll face the consequences. He was preparing for war. Four ear bases, okay, four ear bases closest to Israel as possible. Okay, the four ear bases closest to Israel were loaded. This is what they found out after the war. Were loaded with chemical weapons. Yet 15 planes were loaded with chemical weapons. These are special planes. They even named the plane in the Hebrew site, but I couldn't, I couldn't understand. Something 24, certain type of a plane. These are planes that are meant to, particularly to deliver non-conventional weapons, and they're able to fly very low, and therefore avoid radar protection. So these were loaded, ready to go, right at the beginning. Mysteriously, then, no one knows why. Here's the thing, you'll soon see the miracles in... They were unloaded the next day. Okay? The day after. They were already 15 airplanes loaded with chemical weapons. Now you have to understand that each one of these weapons can kill thousands and thousands of people. Now, in addition, these are the planes. They had 50 Scud missiles. Now they sent Scuds, but the Scuds that they sent were not with gas. Did not have any gas. But they had 50 Scud missiles loaded with chemical weapons. They were also loaded, fueled. They were already fueled and ready to be sent ASAP. Now another crazy miracle. Watch this amazing thing. What the United States did as soon as they began the war was to try to cut off the commanders in Baghdad or the, the commander, the, the, the chief, the elite that are sitting with Saddam from the people out in the field. They wanted to cut off, so you'll cut off their communication. Obviously, that's the smartest thing to do when you're fighting a war. The United States are the most efficient, the most efficient in, 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 in with laser beam um, 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 accuracy. So they attacked all these various different communication centers. After the war, it was discovered, and again, I didn't do this research, I'm basing it on the article that this guy writes, but the way he's, it's, it, it, it seems like he's done his research, the United States has seen that act. Again, they did hundreds of sorties of planes to disrupt this, com this command connection from Baghdad to the air bases. Obviously, you want to do that to save, save Israel, save who knows what, you know, but they shouldn't be able to give the command. It failed. During the entire war, there was communication going back and forth. It was the biggest miracle that it failed. What was the miracle that it failed? The most sophisticated army could not interrupt that, that communication. Why was it the biggest miracle that it failed? Because Saddam had given explicit instructions. If you fail to communicate with us, if communication is cut off between Baghdad and the military bases, you have to immediately unleash 
all the weapons that you have on Tel Aviv and on Israeli cities. Instantly. Why? Very simple logic. What's the logic? The logic is because if we're not communicating, it means that Baghdad is destroyed. So if we go down, they're going down with us. That was their, that was their thing. The miracle happened that it didn't happen. Do you understand the miracle? The, the Abishter watched that, that the United States that did whatever it can to cut off this communication failed to achieve what they needed to achieve. This was all discovered after the war. Now it's unbelievable. Let's continue over here. Had this communication not been disrupted, 50 chemical scuds and 25 biological scuds, missiles loaded with biological weapons would have gone towards Israel. Now let's understand something. You'll say, well, they have the Israelis were well protected. They had gas masks. So first of all, after the war, every, after everything was taken stock, they realized that a third of the population did not have gas masks. They didn't have enough for, for all the people in Israel. That's number one. A third of the population was not protected. Secondly, they only had masks. These chemical warfare, these chemical weapons can seep in through the skin. Only the American soldiers had chemical um, suits that would protect their bodies from any skin exposure to this polluted air. But the people in Israel weren't given any of that. In addition to that, the way the, the, they were so efficient, the Iraqis were so trained in this particular delivery of murderous weapons to kill as many civilians as possible, that they had special weapons that would hit. Their point was, first would come weapons that would blast open the homes, that break windows, shatter windows, shatter doors, and afterwards the chemical weapons would come in. So all this protection would not have helped them. So it was clearly, there was no protection other than the Abishter's protection. They had 500,000 liters of biological weapons. I spoke about till now about chemical weapons. 25 scuds, 157 bombs of anthrax. Britain, I'll tell you what, the biological weapons are much worse than the gas, than the chemical weapons. These, the, these, these weapons are as follows. In, in, in England, the Brits tested an island in Scotland because these, these cause such a pollution that after, it's not just at the time that it happens. When England tried it out on a certain place, 48 years later, the island was contaminated and you could not go on to that island. We're talking about what kind of devastation? He had this already, more than that, and how one such missile contaminates 3,700 kilometers. He had 25 such missiles. After the war, they found a tape, a recording, of Saddam the night, the day before the actual war took place. He's meeting with his top officials. You hear him talking, in which he's asking them if we're locked and loaded with chemical weapons and all that. And they, they say we're all ready. So we, and then they bring up to him and they say we have a particular type of nerve gas that's like, that, that can keep on killing many years later. So he says, I want you to use that in particularly. The worst of the worst of the gas that he has. The worst. And then they said, on where? He says, I want you to hit 
every city in Israel, but concentrate particularly on Tel Aviv. That's what he said. Now the interesting thing is, America did not know, we were speculating if they have biological weapons. The United States did not know about this. During the war, they hit two of their, of their uh, biological factories, places, two of them. They had 20 such development sites. Not only that, all their mobile launchers that they were shooting scuds, the United States failed to hit. Not only that, they failed to hit any of these biological scuds and chemical weapons. With all the bombings and everything, that means that we were not, it wasn't, there was no natural explanation. They asked General Schwarzkopf, who was the, the, the general at that time, why the Iraqis did not use the chemical weapons they promised they're going to use. And he said, I have no explanation, but I thank God that he didn't use it. So do you understand? So the Lubavitcher Rebbe is sitting in New York and is telling the people in Israel, don't be afraid. You don't even have to take the gas masks. Israel is the safest place in the world. Do you realize the Rebbe is putting his, all of his credibility on the line? Everything. He had locked and loaded. The guy gave already orders. Without a divine, explicit intervention, God forbid, it would have been the worst dangerous moment in Jewish history. Millions of Jews could have been, God forbid, I don't want to say. But it says in the Medrash, God says, don't be afraid. And who is he talking through? Who's communicating when you hear it from the Abishter himself? You can say it with confidence. You can say it to the Jewish people. Don't be afraid. The Rebbe clearly said a few months later. It's a whole talk. You can look it up. The Lubavitcher Rebbe said. Now we all hold of him. Everybody today in the Jewish world recognizes. There was times that people didn't realize Lubavitcher Rebbe. Today everybody realizes you're dealing with a big tzaddik. You wouldn't lie. He stood and he told the Jewish world that he is speaking as a prophet, as a Navi, and he's prophesying, the time of redemption has arrived. So what happened? The war was over. Not one scud, not one chemical weapon from the entire arsenal, from, the entire, from everything, nothing was, 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 was launched towards Israel. By the way, how did we know? They didn't even know that they had biological weapons. He denied it. They couldn't find. They found chemical weapons. When the UN inspectors came in, they found chemical weapons, but not biological weapons. How did they find that? Saddam was ready to, he said, I don't have. So the, the, the UN was ready to, and many nations were putting pressure. Okay, you did enough inspections. Get out of there. Let, let Saddam live. He's okay. Like we find all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like over here today, the Democrats. Yeah, yeah. Let the Iranians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stupid people, you've never seen such stupid people in the world. So there in Iraq, they were saying the same thing. Saying, oh, no, 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 leave them. Oh, fine. What happened? Right at the time after four years, right at the time when they were ready to leave, a miracle happened. Saddam Hussein's son-in-law, 
Saddam Hussein's son-in-law defected, ran away. He was in charge of producing all the, all the, all the material. He informed the Americans, whoever else he was, uh, that what really is there. Then Saddam had no choice, but they had to admit it. And they came in, they took away, and they destroyed all the biological weapons that he had. Now it's questionable if, 90, if, in, if in 2003 there were still chemical weapons or not when Bush went in there. But they didn't find anything after, but that's not important. The first war is what we're talking about. When the biggest miracles, ah, we have no clue. The Rebbe then said, if anybody knows the inside story, would know how much greater this miracle was, the Abish to simply save the Jewish people from someone who saw himself as Nebuchadnezzar. And what's the beautiful, beautiful thing? In 2003, he was completely destroyed, humiliated, found in a hole. And when was he found in a hole? On the 19th of Kislev. Yutes Kislev. Yeah, the Yomtev. The Lubavitcher Yomtev of Yutes Kislev, the day of spreading of Hasidus. That's when they found him in that hole. And by the very Iraqi court itself, they condemned him to death. And they hung him up like Haman. And when did he hang? When was this? Today, on the 9th of Tavis, the day before Asara B'Tavis. Asara B'Tavis is what? The beginning of Nebuchadnezzar lying, laying siege on Jerusalem. So on the day before Asara B'Tavis, Bashkoch Protis, that's the day that he's killed. What happened after this incredible time of miracles? For the Jewish people. Incredible light. The wave of the redemption opened. It became dark for the Jewish people again. It became dark again. Like it says it happened by Moshe Rabbeinu when he came to Mitzrayim. And he told the Jewish people to prepare for the redemption. Redemption is coming. The people, first they believed him. Then he went to Paro. Paro made it harder for the Jewish people. It got dark. And it became so dark that Moshe Rabbeinu comes back. To, even Moshe is confused. What happens after the Rebbe telling us everything? He gives Mangulaschem everything. The Rebbe has a stroke. And the Rebbe has another stroke. And everybody laughs at Lubavitch. Cuckoo people. They speak the Rebbe is a prophet. Say the Rebbe is Mashiach. All this funny thing. Everybody laughs. Laugh. What happens immediately after that? Oslo. Global terrorism. Every kind of darkness imaginable. And the political energy, the political scene in the world becomes a monstrous force fighting Giula, fighting Mashiach. The political forces against Israel, the media, the European Union, the UN, all the Chaletis together in the United States, the entire, the State Department, all of them together put in all their efforts. One thing, and now they're not ashamed anymore. They feel, again, subconsciously, that Tzaddik isn't here, or at least in their vision, to protect the Jewish people. They sense the Giyula coming very soon. So now they can't hold themselves back anymore. And they talk about Jerusalem. And they force that you're going to split Jerusalem. You're not going to have a temple. You're not going to have a Beis HaMikdash. So passes 25 years of darkness. But don't think... The Moshiach power in the world subsided. Moshiach did not subside. 
The Geula didn't stop. Once the Geula was released in the world, it will continue. It says in the Medrash, Mashiach is revealed and concealed and revealed again. So what happens during this time? Mashiach goes into the background. What happened? And this is what, we're not, this is what we have to realize today. Unbelievable. Suddenly, without any explanation, Israel is surrounded with I don't know how many Arab countries, enemies, sworn enemies. Suddenly, one after another has an internal transformation and they collapse and they fall apart. What we call the Arab Spring, country after country after country, mighty empires are destroyed, uprisings, protests, Egypt, Libya, where else? Okay, we spoke already. Iraq was already... Without Israel needing to fight its enemies. And were a few other countries. Powerful countries. Overnight, they overthrow their dictators. Trans- and Egypt was like back and forth. You can feel the klipa trying to get a hold of it. Because the Muslim, Muslim Brotherhood, Morsi, took over. Where's Morsi today? They executed him. And now, what do you have in Egypt? Sisi. Good friends with it. I mean, I mean, obviously, still Egypt. But we're talking about nations and what happens to the Arab countries. First of all, many, a regime change in many of these countries. Even Assad is about to fall. The Russians come and prop him up at the end. We'll soon see. Because Assad is like the final thing that has to fall before Mashiach comes. See, he's still a puppet that's still standing there. But one after another, they collapse. This is crazy. But even greater than that, what do you find in the last two, three years happening? Alliances have been made between countries of hundreds of millions of Arabs. All the Gulf states have made now friends with Israel. You're talking about Bahrain, you're talking Saudi Arabia, you're talking about Qatar, I don't know who else there is, quite a few of them. I was now in Australia, I was talking for an Ashul, a Mizrahi Shul. I was speaking about this idea, the miracle that's going on, that millions of people are converting. Ideologies that wanted to kill, that wanted to destroy Jews are flipping over. So a guy tells me that he goes every year to, what's the name of the country there? Um, uh, that he goes to you know, the, the, the big, the, you know, the city, the Dubai. Till now, you know, he would go quietly, this and that. This year is the first year. They're having a big, big conference in Dubai, a big, and Israel is officially invited. You know what that means? That they should officially, and these are like the real grandchildren of Yishmael. These are not like the, uh, the, the, the people on the outskirts. These are the, like we call in Hasidim, we call them the Geja, the real Yichus guys. These are the kings. These, what happened? That's what the Nevoah promises. I'm going to convert the nations one after another. They're going to become your friends. In, who has believed something like this is happening? Millions and millions and millions of people. This is over there. Here in the United States, you have a climate of anti-Israel, anti... And suddenly, stunningly, and this I spoke about a lot, and I'm not going to speak about now, but just a word. In 2016, the whole thing flips over. A president that had no business in any way becoming president of the United States... They're still fighting it tooth and nail every day. Yet he became president of this country and he turned over, reversed, literally, a 180 degree turnaround regarding. And, it, and it's clearly what the Medrash says, the Abishta says, everything that I've done, I've only done for your sake. Everything he's doing is for the sake of the Jewish people that he's stunning us with his support. 
And he announced Yerushalayim, Golan Heights. But wait, right before he became president, the Klippa is panicking. The darkness is panicking. It's ready to die. So what does it do? One menace. One wicked empire. One leftover danger of danger, and that is the Iranian regime. The United States president of the United States goes and sells the Jewish people for 10,000. Not only does he get 10,000 goods, he gives them a billion and a half dollars in cash, delivers it on the tarmac. Please do me a favor. Make me a deal. Show me you're my friend. You're talking about for the world's largest Spot terror sponsor, the one who supports all of Hamas, all of Hezbollah, all of the one who's responsible for the, for the for close to a million people killed in Syria, the bloodshed of who knows how many Americans, how many Jews were killed because of money that he pays to the terrorists that are doing all these ferocious things all across Israel, all outside. This is, this is Iran and Soleimani. This, this is all run by that one Russia. And he over here in the United States signs a nuclear agreement giving him permission and in a sense he himself announced that Iran is going to be a... President Obama announced Iran is going to be a superpower in the region. In 2015, that's what he said. Rahman al-Itzlan. God forbid. You see two clashing forces. The force of Geula, Mashiach, fighting against the forces of darkness. But when he thought that he finally is completed, when he was ready to pop, when he popped already the champagne bottle and thought he's got it done, the Abrister laughed, spun the dreidel the other way. Every single one of his policies has been reversed, particularly when it comes to Israel. And one after another, today where we stand today, it's literally the only thing left is to go ahead and build the base on Migdash. That's what we're holding. Unbelievable. So what happens? Iran is still sitting there burning, burning. They're the only ones standing that have the power to interfere with our base on Migdash. They're the only ones. Everybody else is flipped. They're the only ones. They have an army that's called the Quds. You know what the Quds mean? The Quds means Yerushalayim. The Revolutionary Guard and this particular part that called the Quds, Quds means Jerusalem. This Salomani guy, this whatever, what's his first name? Kassam. This Kassam, by the way, it says Kassam is, is one of the Shadim. The Pasuk says, Loira Kassam be Yisrael. Kassam Salomani, he's the head of the Quds, is a force, an army to destroy Yerushalayim. So you had Saddam for destroying Jerusalem, failed. Now they take over, destroy Jerusalem. Again, they already had the cash. They had everything. They were ready to march on Jerusalem. And what happened? First, they were choked for the last two years, unexpected to them. And then, the miracle that just happened two days ago. This guy is probably one of the most wanted people. Why in heaven's name would a guy like that, after he provokes the United States of America, by killing an American contractor, by storming, by causing our embassy to be stormed, why in the world would a person like that put himself in harm's way and, 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 and go in a convoy to the Baghdad airport where the United States has 
ability to fly planes. It's not like deep in Iran. You know, the guy in Hezbollah, what's his name? The, the leader there of Hezbollah, the guy's, uh, what's the other guy? All these, all these, all these, all these mamzerim, I don't even know their name. But the guy, it's, he's hiding in a bunker for 20 years. He knows he doesn't stick his nose out of there. They, well, they, all these guys, they know that the days are numbered. Why in this world would this guy go driving towards the airport and then they took him out? One missile. The answer is, they had such an inflated ego. The Pasuk says, The wicked inflate themselves. They think they're so great. They think they're invincible. They think they're untouchable. He's Gaiva. He's, he's like Haman. Literally, his, his inflated sense of self thought that he's untouchable. Not only was he killed with the most devastating blow to the Khamenei's, to the whole, to the whole war, war operation, he was killed in the most shameful, embarrassing way. They didn't even, you know, when they killed el-Baghdadi this year, the beginning of the year, they used at least eight helicopters. They had, man, that's, yeah, here was a drone. They had a few drones. With an unmanned, I mean, the embarrassment, the shame, they popped them off like this. It's unbelievable. And here's the beautiful thing. When was he buried? When was his funeral? I don't know what was left over to him to be buried. Actually, a few bags. That's what they had for him. You know when he was buried? Tess, Tavis, Erev, Asarab, Tavis, the ninth of Tavis. Do we see a full circle? Saddam Hussein is hung today. Qasem Salomani is buried today. It's a full circle, and tonight we celebrate Asura B'tev. It is the 10th day of the 10th month as the beginning of the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash when Moshiach's Neshama is conceived in the world. There is no shadow of a doubt that we are actually now entered a whole new level in the process of the redemption. There is no question. It's possible that this medrash that was quoted by the Rebbe 28 years ago is the exact same medrash because Iran is threatening the world now again. Now Iran has no choice now. They don't know what to do because they know they're dealing with someone in the White House who's not a chicken like all the other presidents. He's gonna, he means what he says. And, and again, you see a crazy thing. I mean, you see the Congress is trying to stop him. You see, again, the fight is so, the tension is so, they, meanwhile, they're impeaching him. You see how everything is happening in such an absurd way. And in the middle of all of this, Israel has no government. Do you understand the craziness? How can we not see Israel is without a government? He is, he is now, uh, um, 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 he's being impeached, yet he's fighting this battle from while he's being impeached. And, and, and so they, but Iran has a real dilemma. Because if they fight back, He's going to demolish them. He's going to give them such a zet, and they don't know who, whose number he's got. They know, I mean, I know he got their number. He doesn't know exactly. 52. 52 places. They're trying to figure out what those 52 places. They're trying to change. Maybe they want to say, Allah, you sit here, and I go there, you know? <laughs> who's weird? They don't know. That's number one. That's one's frightening. If they don't fight, do anything back, they become so incredible. They become a laughingstock. So they're really in a quandary. We'll see what's going to happen. But in the meanwhile, people are a little scared. Threat to Israel, so on and so forth. So the Medrash comes in again. Now the Rebbe said this Medrash was already fulfilled then. Why would we say the Medrash again? It's possible that since the Giloy of Mashiach happens twice, in 1991, the Rebbe didn't just say this Medrash and say, oh, it didn't happen. No, the Rebbe spoke about the Hisgalus of Mashiach that year. 
That means that there was a revelation of Mashiach Tzedkenu that year, in 1991, 1992. If you want to know more about it, read the Sichas of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in 1991, 1992. Particularly, I'll tell you which ones to read. Parshas Vayera, Parshas of Beis, 57-52. See, if the Rebbe said, if Mashiach is revealed already, and who he's referring to. Look it, look it up in the Sichas. You can look it up. I'll leave you the honor to do that. I don't have to tell you. But that's revelation number one. Then came the concealment. Moshe's concealed. Now it's time for the revelation to happen a second time. And this time permanently. And this time forever. So it seems like this thing is repeating itself one more time. We have nothing to fear in the physical sense. I would say we should get ourselves a little bit prepared. If anything there is to fear is the discomfort of not being ready. So if we still have a chance to prepare ourselves, I would say to everybody a few things. Number one, say as much Tehillim as you can. Say Tehillim day and night. Really, just daven for the Jewish people, daven for yourself, daven for your families. Be besimcha, be joyous, get ready to receive Mashiach, study about Mashiach, spread the word, spread the word, because there's still Jews walking around them, and if, if this all doesn't remind us, we have the little, the little porcupines that are poking the anti-Semitic attacks which also make no sense. How suddenly this happened in New York, every community, no one is immune. Something, the Abishter is saying, it's time to pack our bags, we're going to Eretz Yisrael, but we don't want, we did enough pain, enough suffering. Time for the Giyula. May we merit to see the completion of the redemption. May we merit that we don't have to, tonight, already tonight, we don't cancel the fast before it begins. Full Giyula Shalema. But we are so there, may we merit to see it now, now, and now, and now. L'chaim. I'm